Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. This is Bernardo Batislaso, and our guest today is Johan Furi, who's um, a professor of economics at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Johan, thank you for being with us, New Books Network. Thanks, Bernardo. It's great to be here. Um, Johan uh, teaches economic history to graduate and undergraduate students. He's a founding member of the African Economic History Network and president of the Economic History Society of Southern Africa. He has published award-winning peer-reviewed research articles and is a regular columnist for South African financial magazines and newspapers. His passion is to equip the next generation of African scholars with the tools and benefits from that uh, revolution in African economic history. And his greatest wish is to be cited in a novel lecture, preferably one one of his students. So very little to ask, I guess. But uh, um, Johan, uh, as we usually do in, in these things, I will ask you to first introduce yourself and tell us a little bit as to how you became interested in economic history. Sure. I, um, uh, I'm an economist by training. I studied in uh, South Africa at Stellenbosch as well. And then um, I was appointed here to teach um, basically undergraduate you know, micro and macroeconomics. And uh, uh, in, in the process, I became interested also in international trade. I was uh, I kind of focused on public finance slash international trade topics, mostly on infrastructure. And then I wrote a paper on ship traffic uh, to the Cape Colony, uh, which was a great data set that I've discovered online. And I had a colleague who was interested in business cycles and we collaborated. And then we sent this, um, this paper off to a conference in Portugal because we really wanted to go to Portugal. And uh, uh, in, ultimately, in, the, in this conference, uh, we ended up in a session with four participants and there were only four uh, people in the audience. And that was basically... The, the four participants and so uh, I was very demotivated and and uh, uh, after this session of ours we we attended a, a meeting of economists at the conference and I said well you know in the next next conference please don't have an Africa session because you know these papers don't have anything to do with one another they uh, they use very different methodologies and uh, and someone came to me afterwards and said well send me the paper I'll read it and it turned out to be uh, a leading economic historian from Europe, Jan Leighton van Zanden, and he invited me to Utrecht University afterwards. And that's how I became interested in economic history. And he uh, also suggested I do a PhD in it. And, and the rest really is, is history. Um, I, I was fascinated with the field uh, for very for you know, a variety of reasons. Um, the first, I guess, is that I was fortunate that the Cape region that I work on was uh, and is still very rich in historical data uh, that that is very well preserved, and so I was the first really to kind of approach many of the questions from a quantitative perspective using the tools of an economist, 
Um, but also simply because, you know, there's a demand for African history. I was at a fortunate time when at the, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when, when the interest in African economic history was rising. Um, and so I could publish at a time when, when more people were interested in why some parts of Africa were doing better and others were still, uh, you know, uh, stagnating. Um, so for both, I guess, supply and demand reasons, I, I ended up in economic history and, and um, very happy to be there. Thank you for that. Um, before we, we go into the book, I think that there is um, an issue that I've that it's quite important and that you've kind of mentioned in passing, which is how to do history in, in Africa. And colleagues have written on how difficult it is to, to find archival sources, which is the main uh, tool of the trade, to be able to do economic history, whether it's uh, analytical, descriptive, or whether it's quantitative. So it is quite a challenge to to be able to to do that for for you know, any emerging market, but um, how, how difficult has it been to do it for, for Africa and particularly for South Africa? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is that is, there's obviously massive variation on the continent. So there are parts of the continent that is in, indeed poorly recorded. Uh, and, and of course, that varies also across time. So you would probably find more sources uh, during the colonial period, of course, with its biases. Um, and and uh, it might be that you even have more sources during the colonial period than the post-colonial period or sources of, of better quality. Um, I was fortunate to uh, work in the Cape archives, which are archives that are preserved for, for more than two centuries now and um, or with records that are, that are older than 200, 300 years sometimes. And, um, and the wonderful thing about the period that I chose, which is the Dutch East India company period for the Cape, which uh, 18th century, uh, is that the, the Cape was in fact governed by a company, you know, and that, that means that companies record a lot of re records. Uh, in fact, it was Jan Leighton who told me um, that we might have better records for the Cape Colony uh, than, than the Dutch have for, for the 18th century Holland. So, um, so I was fortunate to be at a, at, a, at a work at a period and at a time with incredibly rich data. Um, I should also say that, you know, African economic historians are quite creative people, right? So we have to be because, yes, it's not easy to just find a, really, a very well-resourced uh, archive um, and, and, you know, digitize and transcribe information. But there are sources uh, if, you, if you look carefully. So some of my colleagues have gone into former mission stations, uh, you know, religious uh, denominations that, that recorded various kinds of information, uh, hospitals recorded patient information, um, and there's increasingly also the accessibility of of censuses that re were recorded during the kind of late colonial, early post-colonial period. So it's not that the data don't exist. Um, uh, it's it, one it, one needs to you know do the legwork and actually find it uh, if you really want to find novel data. Um, but for the economists, I guess, you know, in, there are more and more of these larger data sets that become available and downloadable, um, uh, you know, where, wherever you are based. And how do you deal then with any or do you reflect at all on, on the bias that or selection bias that um, these surviving records might might have or do you just take them as as face value? 
No, I don't think you can take any historical record at face uh, at face value, right? So, so both quantitative and qualitative records have biases, and and it's the job of the researcher, I guess, to to think hard about the biases, why were certain records recorded uh, and others not, um, uh, not only recorded but actually kept and preserved. Right, that's also important. Um, but I, I do think um, what the advantage is of using quantitative records is that we can often uh, still use uh, very biased and very selected records, but in ways that are orthogonal to the reasons that they were recorded. So, so for example, Alex Murari's initial work on um, heights, um, you know, anthropometric work on Africa uh, was, you know, these these um, uh, colonial officials who were recorded uh, soldiers, African soldiers in Kenya, for example, uh, they went... They weren't, there was no reason for them to uh, be biased uh, in, in terms of the height of the soldier that they recorded or in the attestation form. So, so you can use those heights to, to um, say something about living standards over time and, um, and, and use that in a way that I think it might be a biased source in terms of other types of measures, but in terms of the, uh, of the height recording, I don't think that should uh, necessarily be uh, a concern for the researcher. And there are other kind of ways that one can think of other types of records that one certainly can indeed uh, think of that are can be used in, in ways that are orthogonal. Patient records, for example, if you use that to calculate literacy, there's no way to imagine that that should, uh, should have certain uh, strong biases. Um, of course, there's selection issues that one needs to care about, but that's not necessarily the concern um, about, uh, about, you know, racial biases or these kind of things. Um, I, I do also think there's one additional thing that I want to mention, and that is that often uh, quantification can help you ascertain the size of the bias. Um, and, and I've tried to do this, for example, uh, using patient records as well and trying to, to get at the way that uh, white doctors in South Africa were... Um, racially biased according to certain uh, against certain groups and you can try and actually get at that by looking at things like uh, the uh, way that they assigned certain diseases to certain people um, so so there are interesting things that one can do with quantification actually to to tease out uh, the size of the bias that you can't do with more qualitative approaches um, so it's not to say that they, we shouldn't be concerned about with these biases. We should, um, but I think quantification gives us an additional tool to uh, to understand them. Thank you very much for that. Let's let's talk then uh, specifically about the, your your book, Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom, um, which uh, allegedly makes the the novel contribution of trying to place. Uh, Africa at the center of development. So it's giving us a, a fresh look at, at economic development, given that you're trying to see the lessons from the 100,000 years of human history from from a non-European um, or American perspective. So how, how did you come to um, to the idea of this of this project? Yeah, I, I, you know, I teach economic history to uh, undergraduate students at Stellenbosch, and I've done that since 2010. And uh, the types of, uh, you know, to second years, you can't really prescribe a lot of academic 
papers because second years just don't read them, right? So you need like more accessible textbook-like material. And almost all the textbooks that I could find had either no mention of Africa or where it, it, Africa is mentioned, it's kind of a final chapter in the book. And, and it's typically about, you know, how things fell apart. Um, so Africa always felt like a bit of an afterthought um, in many of these of these texts. Um, and so I, I created a course basically from scratch where I would start with the out of Africa migration. Um, you know, there's some interesting quantitative work econometric work on this by Odin Kalor, um, you know, which also helps us to understand the process of, you know, scientific progress. And, and there's obviously counterclaims and, and count competing hypotheses. Um, and, and using that almost as a stepping stone then into the Neolithic revolution and then, uh, you know, thinking about the economic problem um, and then pre-colonial Africa and all of these kinds of historical periods but really placing Africa at, at the heart of it. So um, it's not really a book that starts with the, you know, the Industrial Revolution and then moves forward. And then Africa is only mentioned when slavery or colonialism is, is, um, is covered. It really is incorporating Africa in all of these um, uh, historical events. So, for example, the chapter on the Protestant Reformation, of course, that starts in Europe. But it has massive implications for Latin America, for Africa, because of the missionaries that are ultimately sent to those continents and the types of effects that they have. And, and there's a massive literature now in economic history on the effects of these missionaries. Again, a kind of a co interesting contested literature um, because it deals with sample selection issues and all of those things. Um, so it's really trying to kind of build on a very recent scholarship, um, but then integrate that into these kind of broader... Uh, uh, historical episodes. So the book is chronological in that sense, but always keeping in mind this Africa focus. So your audience is mainly your students, or are you trying to also talk to a broader audience, and, and how? Yeah, so I, I started the book actually um, out of necessity in some sense, because I, you know, when COVID came in, in 2020, our lectures moved online, and my, my classes had always been discussion classes um, and I just found that students um, uh, didn't really you know have the same uh, eagerness I guess to, uh, to to share their thoughts and ideas in an online setting and so I, I started writing the lectures as, as chapters or as, as kind of lecture notes and then at some stage a student said to me you know a couple of weeks later they've really enjoyed this reading this but actually they've Parents have also started reading this and their, you know, siblings have also started reading this and they've also enjoyed this. And I kind of, that idea then grew and I thought, well, maybe this is a book that shouldn't only be written for second year students. It should be for a much broader audience. So ultimately, I think I wrote the book for what I would call an airport audience. Anyone that kind of has traveled a lot knows that you always go to the books, bookshop on the airport and there's all these kinds of different accessible uh, books on, you know, history of whatever topic you might think of. And so I thought, you know, how would I make an airport book uh, about global economic history, again, from this African perspective? And so I think it is an, a book that ultimately should reach a much wider audience. And uh, that's partly why I, in 2021, I published the book first as a, at a commercial South African publisher. So it wasn't initially a, an academic publisher. It was a commercial South African publisher. 
and Cambridge University Press uh, then afterwards bought the international rights. Um, so it is written really for it. And the book was a commercial success in South Africa. We've al- almost sold out the kind of first uh, edition. Um, and and it's been translated into other languages now in South Africa as well. So, um, so and that, you know, the feedback that I've received has been almost entirely from, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, from engineers. Um, it's quite fascinating to see who enjoys the book. Um, and it's, it's exposed me to completely new markets that I would never have been able to uh, reach just inside the classroom. But of course, it is also prescribed within my uh, university now. And I hope that other universities will, will take it up as well. What is the, the story that this broader audience is, is you think is taking from, from the book or the, the story that you want to tell them? Yeah, I think the... Um, I think we've got, certainly in South Africa, but I suspect this is a global trend as well, we are increasingly quite pessimistic about the future. Um, certainly in South Africa, I understand that, especially my students, they are very pessimistic. Um, and in South Africa, that makes sense because for the last decade, we've basically had negative economic growth. So their experience of adult, well, adult, but like teenager life basically is uh, is is one of, of negative and, and pessimism. Um so, and when, you know, it's, it's strange for me, but these students don't remember the 2010 World Cup, right? They were five years old. So for them, the World Cup in South Africa is, was a non-event. It was like in distant memory. So it really is a, you know, anything before 2010, which in fact in South Africa is a very optimistic story, is, is a distant memory and it almost didn't exist for them. Um, anything after 2010 is is indeed you know global financial crisis and then and then negative growth in South Africa. So so they were negative, pessimistic, and and in general I think the sentiment in South Africa, but also globally uh, with COVID, of course, is that you know things are deteriorating. And so part of the message of the book is certainly to say, well, if you take a longer term perspective, things are not that bad, right? But I'm of, of course not the first to say that. There are many other books to to do that. I think what the, what uh, my uh, uh, our long walk to economic freedom does is to um, to help explain why that is. Like you know, what is the what are the reasons for why some countries have done so well and others you know not yet. Um, and and I, I think that's really helpful to do that again with this global perspective. So we do see success stories, fabulously successful countries that have you know increased their standards of living immensely in the 20th century. Uh, and so we can learn from them and we can also see what the reasons are for other countries not adopting those lessons or being prevented from growing at, the, at those kind of uh, rapid rates. So I, I think that's really the benefit of this kind of global perspective is to kind of position yourself in the longer term and then uh, understanding that things are not, not inevitably bad. Things can, can be better. So that, that is a contested area that you're touching on. What makes some countries do better than, than others? Um, and there is a huge debate in within the profession about about this. And so where would you sit within this debate or how do you try to deal with this debate um, without making the reader, you know, going into these complicated nuances between the arguments? Mm. Well, I mean, I, it's difficult for me to look beyond kind of Joel Mokier's 
very simple summary, I guess, of the lessons we've learned from the Industrial Revolution, right? Those two lessons where the first is that uh, we should use our understanding of nature, or what you might call that science, to make us more productive, right? So, so that's the kind of a, still a case of innovation is important. And, and um, obviously, he's done a lot of work on that, but others have, have also supported that. And then the second lesson, and, and the first thing I'll say about, uh, or the thing I'll say about the first lesson is that that seems super obvious to us or to our generation. But I think, you know, for most of human history, the idea that your children will live better lives than you was certainly not something that even existed in their minds, right? The best you could hope for for your kids was that they would survive into adulthood. Um, so, so it is a pretty modern idea, the idea that things can go better. And my hope is that we don't lose that idea, right? I think, I think still things can go better. Um, but, but it does seem at the moment that that, that is an idea that's, that is indeed um, in question. And then the second lesson of Mokier is, is the idea that those you know that productivity leads to surplus production, and that but that those surpluses shouldn't be um, limited to an elite. That they should be democratized. That they should be shared, right, amongst many. And and again, that's also a pretty modern idea, right? The idea that you shouldn't that the elite shouldn't just expropriate any surpluses that society creates. Um, and certainly in South Africa, that's a very modern idea. Right? It's only an idea since 1994, really. So. Um, so I think, you know, those two lessons ultimately are at root, at the roots of, of the prosperity of, um, the last two centuries, um, and, uh, exactly what policies one need to implement to get those ideas right. That's obviously a much bigger debate, but I think fundamentally any policy we think of should link back to one of those two ideas, like, you know, either improving our productivity or allowing that uh, the surplus we generate from that productivity to be shared by many. So, which was the the, the chapters that were, on the one hand, more fun to write, and the ones that were more difficult to to write and more challenging? I um, oh, that's a great question. I um, I really enjoyed the kind of start of the book. I guess the the first couple of chapters were pretty easy. I I mean, I think there was one day where I, where I wrote two chapters in one day um, and because I knew the stories very well. Uh, I knew what I wanted to say. I've been teaching this for 10 years. Um, and of course, the, the, the course that evolved over those years, but I, I kind of fundamentally knew what I wanted to say. I think towards the end, it became more difficult than the one chapter I really feared writing was the one on the global financial crisis because I didn't, I didn't know much about the global financial crisis. But ultimately, I think that chapter turned out uh, surprisingly interesting to write because it, it ended up being, a, you know, a chapter, of course, on the global financial crisis. But I started the chapter in Iceland. Uh, I had in two years earlier just traveled to Iceland. My wife and I, we spent like a really nice holiday uh, riding around the country. Um, and um, so it was kind of useful to also have those very personal experiences and inform that story. And it, and the chapter then ends with Iceland again and, and like, you know, Bitcoin and bubbles and these kind of things. So um, I try and obviously make it, you know, bring in um, kind of more personal experiences, make it relatable to the reader. Uh, it's not just a dry, pure history. 
um, which I think is part of why it's why it's kind of accessible and sometimes you know even entertaining. Um, but that was actually I, I I really feared writing that chapter because I f- I feared I might miss something important, and ultimately I think that turned out quite quite nicely. Um, most of it was written chronologically, so so I didn't leave, but that was the one that I left behind and and hoped that, <laughs> that I would get the courage to write it at some stage. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yes, I, I guess there is a little bit of, of of that fundamental insecurity of being an academic that we all share of, you know, the fear of having to say something wrong or somebody, you know, that 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 you're not in complete detail control of the details, you no, know, and and that um, sometimes surprised me with people that can write for a wider audience and say things that. And um, <clears throat> might might not necessarily be be there, but anyway, it's a, it's it's one of the uh, parts of the of the profession. But 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 you mentioned just just now very briefly some of the bits that were left out. So, what are the things you you know if you had the space or if you were invited to write a second volume, would you would you include and and why? Sure, that's another that's another great question. I so the the nice thing about doing a Cambridge edition is that you have time to correct all your mistakes in the first one. So I uh, I have added about 10,000 words to the second edition, the international edition now, which includes another chapter. That was a chapter that I wrote in, in November 2021 um, on war. Um, so uh, it turns out you know, to be quite... Uh, uh, prescient um, to to write that chapter, but it's about the causes and consequences of the Second World War and and leads into the Cold War. And again, a nice chapter because it starts in Poland and then spreads, you know, to Vietnam and and ultimately ends in Mozambique. So it's it's a kind of a nice global chapter again. But there were also other chapters that that got you know completely overhauled. So I got fantastic feedback um, on the first uh, edition from some of my colleagues. Um, so certainly the chapter on slavery has, has um, been, I think, substantially improved and expanded. Um, what I would do now is uh, not entirely clear. I think there um, there might be space for a chapter on um, uh, the Indian subcontinent. Uh, there's not much on, uh, say, Pakistan or Bangladesh or India itself, Um so uh, exactly how that ties into a bigger literature. So it's it's not that I just want a regional chapter. It would be probably something related to institutions um, that I'll, I'll bring in there. Um, so that's something that I might think of in future. Um, and what else? I think, um, I mean, that I, I should also add that I rely heavily on a... The, the rest of the scholarship of my profession, right? So, so there's always new papers that's coming out. Already some of the uh, chapters that I worked on only two years ago could benefit from some of the new papers that came out. There's wonderful work, for example, now on Chile that I would have loved to include in, in the book as well. So it is a book that will be updated hopefully every five years or so. Uh, and there's also some of the chapters that are that have uh, papers there where some of the results are now being contested so that's great that that shows that in future you know i can i can mention these uh scientific debates and and that will help i think improve the um the reading experience for the reader or at least kind of being aware that these things are still in contention that nothing is fixed like you know there's there's always room for improvement um 
yeah, but I, I'm quite happy with the with the Cambridge University Press issue. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. And and finally, um, what is that you're working on now? What what is going to be your your next uh, project, short term and long term, other than updating the books every uh, this book every five years? Yeah, I um, sure. I I um, certainly would try and, and want to show the success of the book in terms both, I guess, of, um, you know, the feedback that I get, but also just in terms of sales, that's a very hard number that, that tells you at least whether people are reading it. So I guess um, it would be nice to reach audiences beyond our profession. I think that that would be nice to do. And so that's why, you know, invitations like this is, is wonderful. Um, uh, I am uh, at the moment busy with a couple of quite large projects. Um, most of it relates to transcribing historical data um, and then analyzing those those data sets. Um, so, and that's related to South African economic history. So, if I was probably to do a book uh, again, although that that is <laughs> that's not in the immediate future, but it might be uh, related to the the kinds of research that I do. Um, so, you know, looking at kind of an economic history of South Africa from an economic history perspective um, or quantitative perspective, at least, uh, you know, that I think there's a lot of interesting work that, that's come out of my research group um, at Stellenbosch University, um, which is LEAP. And, and we've, we've quite a big team now. And so it would be nice to report on some of those findings for a, for a larger audience. Thank you very much for for that, Johan. And and again, thank you for being with us at the New Books Network. Uh, we hope to have you again in the future with a with a new project. And for our listeners, um, please uh, remember to subscribe if you haven't already done so, and also to rank us or leave comments. Those are always very helpful. Um, you can find me at uh, uh, Batis Lasso in Twitter, and you can find us as well in. Uh, a new book, uh, new history books, new books network, and new books ESP, which is the, our Spanish uh, version and challenge. Um, Johan Puri, again, thank you very much for being with us at New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me.